welcome to another day as we go through the Word of God. And I'm so glad that you have joined me today as we continue this journey through the book of Proverbs. And uh, today we are going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 34. And I'm so glad that you are with me on this journey. And if you've not looked at any of my previous videos, please go back and do that. The easiest place to do that is probably on my YouTube channel. Anthony P. Richards links in the description below, and I have uh, all playlists created there, so you can go through each books of the Bi- book of the Bible and uh, see all the videos that I've done. I've done about two hundred videos so far. I've done some complete books, and then there's others that I've I've kind of uh, done some parts and need to do others, and there's other books that I haven't touched yet. Uh, but I'm going to continue to work through the Word of God. And I hope that this is a blessing to you. And I, I, when I ask you to like, subscribe, comment, and share, it's not to me, make me feel good. It's so that, that we can get the Word of God, uh, the truth of the Word of God out there for people to rightly divide for themselves. And that's all I'm trying to do. And I want to really encourage you to uh, uh, get this out to as many places as possible. So as we continue today into uh, Proverbs chapter 3, let's start off. Uh, in verse 11. Now remember, Proverbs, that's what they are saying. Okay. They're not absolute, uh, uh, promises. They are, they are truths. And, uh, they're saying the sayings of Solomon and, uh, all about the uh, teaching us to understand what the fear of the Lord really means and how to pursue, uh, wisdom and understanding and, uh, and knowledge. And remember that Solomon has started off by saying, my son, and he's, he's writing this to his, to his son. And, and, and after the first part of, uh, chapter three, he gets to verse 11. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction for whom the Lord loves. He corrects just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now he's saying this to his own son, which is amazing. Now he's giving this advice to his son. Uh, Solomon taught his son how to regard correction and discipline from God, the chastening of the Lord, knowing that he's received it from his own father. Now, the, the Hebrew word that's used here is the, for chastening is the word musar, and it signifies correction, discipline, instruction, and teaching. And, and, and these are necessary and being taught all of these are necessary to show, to show, you know, Solomon's saying, you need, I need to show you this. I need to teach you this so that you know the way in which you need to go. See, discipline is necessary to, to, to render the teaching that has been taught to be effective. And often Adam Clark says, correction is requisite in order to bring the mind into submission without which it cannot then acquire knowledge. Matthew Poole said, We may despise God's chastening by accounting it as an unnecessary and useless and troublesome thing. (laughs) I'm sure many people think that. And the writer to Hebrews actually quotes this passage uh, in the New Testament in his encouragement that Christians should go through and endure their own seasons of chastening and the discouragement that comes with that, that they'd be encouraged in knowing that this suffering is a sign of being a son and a daughter of God. So then he says, now, whatever you do, don't detest correction from God. Uh, 
This is when God either brings or allows, you know, discomfort or affliction in the life of a believer, but it's for the good of something. What is it for the good of? Uh, exposing sin that has not previously been seen, uh, showing the nature of a problem and the need to address it in our lives, uh, discouraging the, the, the previous embrace of a sin or evil in our lives, guiding, uh, to the rejection of sin or evil and the embrace of God's best instead. David Guzik said this, The particular discomfort or affliction could come in many ways. God may do it through the inward conviction of the Holy Spirit. It may come through critics and adversaries. It may come through disappointing and sour circumstances. However it may come, it will not feel good. But from God could be allowed to do much good in the life of the believer. Dwayne Garrett said this, Discipline primarily involves teaching or training rather than punishment for wrongdoing. It is analogous to military training, in which, although the threat of punishment is present, even stern discipline is not necessarily retribution for offences. Hardship and correction are involved, however, which are always hard to accept. Charles Bridges, one more. The Lord's discipline is like that in a family, not in a school, let alone in prison. The Lord corrects his children and does not treat them as criminals. I love the rod of my heavenly father. How gentle are the stripes I feel, how heavy those I deserve. Why why did Solomon say this to his son? Because he said, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. You see, if we see this rightly, God's correction of his people is an incredible sign of his love for us. In our instinctive desire uh, for an easy and comfortable life, we often wish that God would not correct us and just leave us alone and just go <laughs> the same way we do to some of our kids sometimes. Oh, I just can't be bothered. You know, just let him get away with it. It's not a big deal. Um, but because God loves us and delights in us, according to his wisdom, he will deal with our sin. He'll deal with our weaknesses. He'll deal with our failings. A father who truly loves his children will correct them appropriately. Because if a father leaves sins and failings uncorrected, that's not a sign of love. It's a sign of indifference. It's a sign of selfish disregard. Well, I don't care. Didn't hurt me. And, and, and that's not good. That's not the way we're meant to be. Uh, Waltke said this about C.S. Lewis. He said, C.S. Lewis illustrates the truth by noting that an artist may not take much trouble over a picture drawn to amuse a young child, but he takes endless effort over his great work of art that he loves. Yeah, that's really calling it out for what it is. Warren Wiersbe, sometimes God chastens because we have rebelled and we need to repent. Other times he chastens to keep us from sinning and to prepare us for his special blessing. No matter how much the experience hurts us, it will never harm us because God always chastens in love. I, I think that's a really, that's a great nugget right there. Um, okay. Uh, verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her proceeds. Remember, he calls wisdom a woman. Very appropriate. Her proceeds are better 
than the profits of silver which you've mined or dug for, and her gain more than fine gold. She is more than precious, she is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honour. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Solomon longed for his son and and basically everybody who would ever read Proverbs to seek after wisdom. In the fear of the Lord, wisdom and understanding, which are often the result of God's loving correction, remember, would guide men and women into a truly happy life. Uh, The word happy means blessed here. Bless, Alan P. Ross. Blessed describes heavenly bliss stemming from being right with God. It depicts the human condition of well-being that comes with God's blessing or is a divine reward for righteousness. Uh, Charles Bridges, is wisdom, this is a great, I love the way he puts this, is wisdom a sullen matron who entertains her followers only with sighs and tears? Does this mean that to gain the joys of the next life, we must bid eternal farewell to the benefits of this life? That is the world's creed, and it is slander from the great liar. Could be more untrue. See, we, we, people say, I hear this all the time. People say, well, you, you deserve happy. You need to do what, you deserve to do whatever makes you happy. No, you don't. Uh, you, you don't deserve happiness. If you want to talk about what you and I deserve, it's eternal death. Let's just call it spade a spade. Uh, but, uh, but the Bible says that through Christ, we have access to the promises of God and we don't deserve happiness, but we can find happiness. How do we find happiness? In wisdom. We don't find happiness in, in, in necessarily in the circumstances of life, but we do find it in wisdom. Her proceeds are better than the profits of silver. Wisdom. Uh, you know, particularly when it comes from God's correction, it's better than any material gain you'll ever have in your life. It imparts a kind of character and training that brings contentment, brings quality of life that money just simply can't provide. Uh, you know, Solomon sought God and then ended up being one of the wealthiest men in the world. Uh, all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Uh, this wisdom is greater than any kind of riches. Silver, fine gold, rubies, no matter. To have wisdom that comes from God's loving correction is to have something better than material wealth. Uh, now, because of the inheritance of his father, this is talking about Solomon, because of the inheritance of his father and basically his own incredibly you know, wise business dealings, he became a fabulously wealthy man. Second Chronicles chapter 9, you know, may well have been the wealthiest person to ever live on the planet. Uh, and he was wealthy in a way that few people would ever know. Now, he knew that the blessings of a relationship with God and godly character were greater than what most men desire in material things. Why? Because he had more material things than anybody else. So he was able to say that. Now, he says length of days are uh, length of days is in her right hand. In principle, wisdom brings a lot of benefits. Um, wise people generally live longer. They enjoy greater prosperity, riches. They enjoy greater esteem and honor. They live lives that are marked by pleasantness, by peace, and 
by happiness. Happy are all who retain her. Matthew Poole. Wisdom here is represented as a great and generous princess distributing gifts to her subjects. Adam Clark. She is a tree of life, alluding most manifestly to the tree so-called which God in the beginning planted in the garden of paradise by eating the fruit of which all the wastes of nature might have been continually repaired so as to prevent death forever. That's what wisdom was. Wisdom was in the garden is what, you know, Solomon's, you know, he's alluding to that here. We've always had access to, to perfect wisdom. We just chose to reject it and now we have it in the word of God. Verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. We just entered here a whole new topic (laughs) <laughs> which I love, and that's what I love about Proverbs. I mean, you can just go from here to here, boom, there you go. It's like time machine. Uh, straight away here, Solomon moves on to a different topic about the wise creator, God. And and these verses here, are they're hugely profound, hugely profound, because in God's work of creation, he showed great wisdom. And, and that's seen in the large features and the small details of creation. The universe around us uh, has the marks of an incredibly brilliant, intelligent designer whose design shows his wisdom. God's revelation, self-revelation through creation, it's an important theme of the book of Romans, which also describes the guilt of mankind in ignoring and rejecting God's self-revelation through what he created. Uh, Alan P. Ross this section in, in Proverbs shows that the wisdom that directs life is the same wisdom that created the universe. To surrender to God's wisdom is to put oneself in harmony with creation, the world around one. By understanding, he established the heavens. God's creating wisdom is seen in the smallest details of a single cell. But it's also seen in the expansive majesty of the heavens when you look up. In, in, in his great understanding, God created a universe that, that many people flippantly call just right. Uh, you know, physicists and scientists will, will say, well, the, the universe is just right. It just, just, it just, it's just, it's just in the right proportion. It has a just right gravitational force. If it was any larger, the stars would be too hot, burn up too quickly, too unevenly to support life. If it was smaller, the stars would remain so cool that nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat and light. Uh, the universe has a just right speed of light. If it were larger, stars would send out too much light. If it were smaller, stars would not send out enough light. The universe has a just right average distance between the stars, even as they're expanding. If it were larger, the heavy element density would be too thin for rocky planets to form, and there would only be gaseous planets. If it were smaller, planetary orbits would become destabilized because of the gravitational pull from other stars. This is amazing. Wisdom made all of this just right. Look, if you want your life to be just right, just like the universe, then you need godly wisdom. That's why people go, oh, I just wish, I just wish 
You know, how many times do you feel, well, I just wish God would do this and I just wish God would do that. Listen, how about you just realize that God's a just right God and that, and that if you would just seek godly wisdom, everything would be just right. <laughs> You'd be fine. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up. Uh, probably a likely reference to what happened uh, during the flood uh, described in Genesis chapter 7. God knew that, that a judgment was necessary with Noah and he knew how to make it happen, you know, geographically, geologically. Uh, the, 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 the radical ecological changes that, uh, su- that were suggested by the flood of Noah, you know, that was set into motion, if you like, um, our Earth's own modern hydrological system. You know, I mean, um, you know, he talks about the clouds drop down the dew. That, now, if you've never been to Israel, that, that that statement may not mean a lot to you. But let me let me just read to you what Bruce Waltke says about it first. The west wind after sunset brings enough moisture of the sea with it that during the night it falls in rich dew. In Canaan's almost rainless summer, the land was dependent on this moisture for life. And so dew was more impressive to Orientals than to Westerners, who, having a more abundant amount of rainfall, have less dependence on dew. Now, if you've been with me to the desert of Israel, you can imagine this. There's no rain. So where do they get their moisture from? The dew. The dew that settled in the morning. This is what Solomon's talking about here. You can imagine the drop down the dew. Uh, it's an amazing imagery here. Clouds drop down the dew. This is all from wisdom. The life source. We, if it doesn't rain, we're all like, well, how are we going to live? Th- that's what wisdom, wisdom is like a life source to us. Okay, let's move on. Verse 21. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they will be your life to your soul and grace to your neck. Solomon told his son the importance of constant attention to God's wisdom and discretion. And that requires not only, you know, a, a, a life diligence, but also an appropriately, appropriately surrendered heart that recognizes God's wisdom and discretion are greater than my own. That, that, that will be life to your soul. Constant attention to God's wisdom and God's discretion is what actually brings a real tangible benefit to your life and my life. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you'll not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down, and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and will be and will keep your foot from being caught. You will walk safely in your way. In principle, God guides those who honor his wisdom into paths of safety. There's nothing safer than living in the wisdom and the will of God. That's why then the Lord can be your confidence because the wise life can let go of fear. You will not be afraid. And in the release of anxiety, uh, you can know the blessing of a sweet sleep. When, when you're confident in God, you don't have to be afraid of, of sudden terror or trouble from people who are your enemies. You can sleep sweetly because you know God is on your side. Uh, Matthew Poole said this about your sleep will be sweet. Free from the distracting cares and terrors, 
which oftentimes haunts sinners even in their sleep because their mind will be composed and serene through the sense of God's favour and providence and the conscience of their own integrity. Your own integrity is what will give you a sweet sleep. Your confidence in who God is will give you a sweet sleep. The the distraction of of the terrors that come from others, that'll keep you awake if you don't trust God. Think about Peter. Uh, in prison, Charles Bridges. When Peter was in prison, in chains between two soldiers on the eve of his expected execution, when there seemed but a step between him and death, he was able to lie down, go to sleep, and not be afraid. <laughs> not many people would do that, but that's, he just had a total confidence in, in whatever the outcome was going to be. Verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. This, this is, again, we've, we now, now we've moved on again, okay? Um, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow, I'll give it to you, when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. Now, uh, let me just talk about the verse 27 here. Do not withhold good from those who, to whom it is due when it's in the power of your hand to do so. I, I learnt this. I was taught this by my, my father's brother, my uncle Vaughan. Um, I remember him sitting there. He was, he was, uh, a former, uh, prisoner of war in World War II. He was a tough man. He was a hard man on the outside, made hard and tough by the circumstances of life, but he was very loving um, and very compassionate. And and uh, I remember him sitting me down when I was uh, when I was a young man, and um, and I remember him saying to me, "If you can ever help somebody, you help them. If if you've got it and somebody else needs it, give it to them." Um, if you have the ability to do good, do it. Now, it, my uncle was not somebody advanced in his faith. He wasn't a Bible scholar. He was just a simple man with a simple faith. And when I say simple, I mean I don't mean that simple mentally. He was an incredibly intelligent man. Um, but but his 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 faith in Jesus Christ was simple. It was just like Jesus died for me. I love Jesus. Uh, I believe in the truth of the Word of God. And um, and so that's what I mean by simple. And he did the simple things well. You know, he loved his family, uh, helped anybody who needed help. And here Solomon is giving this, this practical example of the lesson and the lessons that wisdom teaches. And, and he begins with this simple principle here that you've got to do good when it's in the power of your hand to do so. Adam Clark, do not refuse a kindness when it is in your power to perform it. If you have the means by yourself and your neighbor's necessities are pressing, then do not put him off until tomorrow because death may either take him or take you before that time. There you go. There's a reality. To those whom it is due. Now, how do you know to those it is due? Uh, Dwayne Garrett says this. They may be laborers who have earned their pay. They may be the poor who rightly plead for help. Or they may be suppliants at the city gates who call for justice. That's to whom it is due. Then he goes on and says, Now, do not say to your neighbor, 
uh, you know, go and come back tomorrow. Because the good that we need to do, we should do it promptly while the opportunity still exists. Because if you leave it tomorrow, it may never happen. Uh, and it will certainly not happen as soon as it could and it should happen. Okay, then he goes on, he says, Now, don't devise evil against your neighbour. God's wisdom teaches us to treat others well. Uh, our security and safety is connected to the good of our neighbour. So then for safety's sake, we should not strive with our neighbour and, and, and have strife with them when there's no cause, if he has done you no harm. So then he goes on and says, Now, don't devise. In other words, don't do this unethically. Don't be litigious. Adam Clark said this, don't be litigious uh, or of a litigious, quarrelsome spirit. Be not under the influence of too nice a sense of honour. If thou must appeal to a judicial authority to bring him that wrongs you to reason, then avoid all enmity and do nothing in a spirit of revenge. Charles Bridges, we must be aware of becoming involved in quarrels instead of pursuing peace. A spirit of strife is a great hindrance to holiness and is inconsistent for any of God's servants. So if you've got a beef with somebody and you need to settle it in a law court, don't do it out of a sense of revenge and don't, I'm going to get them and don't let it cause strife between you. Okay. Now I know that that's difficult, but this is the Bible standard here. This is what wisdom is telling us to do. Don't don't unethically plot against your neighbour, even if they've done something wrong by you. Okay, verse 31. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways, for the perverse person, person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. But he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Wisdom teaches us that though the way of the wicked might seem good and sometimes, you know, enviable, like, wow, well, they're living like, they're not living according to God's word and their life looks pretty good. We should never choose consciously their ways just because it looks good. Because to honour God and to love others and to live in godly wisdom, we should never oppress others, okay? Um, which is what we do if we live like other people. Now, the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. We should never envy or imitate the oppressor because God knows how and when to judge those wicked people. He's got, he's got it. He's got it. You don't need to worry about it. God blesses the home of the just, but he also scorns the scornful. And, and whatever temporary prosperity the wicked should have should never make us envy them or imitate them. The, the perverse person, Bruce Walke said this, the Lord abhors intrigue, but people who are candid and upright, who know the virtue of openness and simplicity, have his ear. Okay, he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. This is, this, this is an incredibly awesome principle, and is repeated three times in the Bible. James, it's here, James chapter 4 verse 6 and 1 Peter 5 verse 5. And it shows how pride sets God in opposition to us. But humility invites the grace of God. We want to be humble and we want to receive God's grace. And there's a sense in which Solomon spoke, spoke of wisdom and humility as being very closely related. Those who are wise enough 
to see God as he really is and ourselves as we really are are going to have a natural and appropriate humility. Uh, James 4 and James and 1 Peter 5, um, they, they allow us to understand that the Lord resists the proud. That's, that, it's kind of the nice way of allowing us to understand what that means. When, when if you were to break it down in, the, in, in Hebrew, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a lot stronger language. Uh, he mocks the proud mockers is how it would read. Um, okay. The wise shall inherit glory. Whatever exaltation the, the wicked seem to have. In other words, when other people lift them up because they've done well, uh, it's only temporary because their legacy is eventually going to be shame. But God has a destiny of glory for his wise, humble ones, the ones who follow him. They will inherit glory. The wise shall inherit glory. Well, that's amazing when you think about it. We're not going to have it. We're going to inherit it. That they, they'll have it. It will be our, our proper and perfect and perpetual right forever. Um, but you know, what do fools? Fools earn shame. The wise inherit glory. So, so what do you want to observe out of that? Uh, th- there's a lot. You, you could, you could observe any one of these passages here. Uh, you know, about correction and what happens and the role that plays in our life. Uh, God's role of wisdom in creation. Uh, what, what, what does it mean, uh, about where our eyes look, what does it mean when we think about the the power that's in our hand to help people and whether we withhold that, what does it mean to envy those people who live great lives seemingly, but they, you know, we know they're wicked, we know they're doing things they shouldn't. Um, there's, I mean, you can observe so much just from, and this is just, you know, two-thirds of one uh, one chapter of Proverbs, so much to observe. So I'm just going to pray for you today that you will observe whatever God wants you to uh, to see and whatever he wants to reveal to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for people today watching this. Bless them, encourage them, I pray. Allow them, Lord, just to have this time of pondering, to listen to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.